Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Richard Booth, and he is an independent researcher who grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he has researched the Oklahoma City city bombings that took place on April 19th, 1995. In detail, I've read some of his articles. I'm familiar with the subject, and there's a lot of very political, parapolitical things that happened around this bombing. But Richard Booth maintains an interest in 20th century history with a focus on the Cold War and the formative geopolitical events of the last 50 years. He developed an interest in the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 when he was in high school. And starting in 2014, he spent several years putting together a large repository of newspaper clippings, court transcripts, FBI documents, and other research materials relating to the case. In 2019, he donated his Oklahoma City bombing research archive to the Libertarian Institute and occasionally writes essays about the subject. And I will put a link into those archives. He is not part of the Libertarian Institute, but they uh, agreed to put up his repository of research and all the things that he's put together. But uh, there's a lot that we can talk a long time about this because there's so many sketchy things. There's deaths of police officers. There's people who are involved around McVeigh who are never interviewed and just a lot of sketchy things happening from the FBI, but he can talk more about that. So Richard Booth, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Hey there, William. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Richard, for people who may not have heard your other stuff, um, can you kind of talk about your how you started your inquiry into Oklahoma City and what you, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing and what you found? Absolutely. So basically when it happened, um, I was following this story and I was drawn to the case by the John Doe number one and John Doe number two sketches that were released on April 20th. And uh, when this John Doe number two was never identified, that really kept my interest. And I uh, was following the case in around 97, 98 on the internet. There was a mailing list. It was called the John Doe Times. And that republished a lot of stories that were from the McCurtain Gazette by a reporter named J.D. Cash. So I was reading a lot about it. And, you know, my life continues and I'm, I'm not really uh, following the case as much. But then a book came out in 2012 by Roger Charles called uh, Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed and Why It Still Matters. Now, when I read that book, as well as a book that came out in 2001 called um, In Bad Company, this uh, renewed my interest in the bombing. So what, what I did is I actually, um, I wanted to write a book about the case starting in about, it was about 2012, 2013. And I started uh, just networking with people. I, for example, reached out and met Wendy Painting through her. I met Roger Charles and Jesse Trinidou, I became friends with Roger Charles. And subsequently, um, they started sharing with me a lot of documents, things like FBI documents, uh, court transcripts, defense memos, things like that. And so I'm working on this archive between the period of about 2013 and I'm going to say around 2016 is when I kind of finished my effort. I had found that I gathered just a whole bunch of material that I thought I really would like to have had access to this when I first started looking into this case. I'm thinking about other students or other researchers and um, having access to something like that. And so I, that's when I decided I just want to put this online because I'd like to get other other people interested in the case. And if they could access uh, like this kind of material all at once, I think it would serve to further um, someone else's interest and perhaps create new students. 
Right. And so there were problems right there from the beginning. And you include in one of your articles, this uh, FBI agent wasn't Colson. It was Kennedy holding up this APB or something, holding up this what's become known as John Doe number two, right? That's right. Weldon Kennedy had a press conference on April 20th where he held up the sketches of John Doe 1 and John Doe 2. He described uh, John Doe 1 and 2. And of course, the description for John Doe 1 does sound a lot like McVeigh and the photo or the drawing that is looks like him. Uh, but then John Doe 2, uh, interestingly enough, he has a lot of details about him. And one of those details that he gave on the April 20th press conference was he is he said he is possibly a smoker and that was based on several witness details people in the body shop who said this other person with McVeigh was smoking and then you also had a couple of uh, convenience store employees who were witnesses who said you know the rider truck pulled in and McVeigh came in he purchased cigarettes and McVeigh was not a smoker and so that was part of the FBI's early investigation and is one of the details concerning this guy Right, so it starts off there, and maybe you can. I know that the only two people who were prosecuted for this bombing were Nichols and McVeigh, right? But you include so many witnesses that have come forward and say, There's another guy here, there's another guy. And can you talk about all those witnesses, what they saw? Maybe we could just start for the, the what the, the standard narrative is and why that narrative doesn't include all the facts. Do you mind kind of going through what the government says happened on OKC? Sure, absolutely. So to understand kind of uh, the details about John Doe 1 and 2, you just have to look at what that official story is. And what that says is that McVeigh and Terry Nichols built a bomb on April 18th at Geary Lake in Kansas. Following that, McVeigh then allegedly drove the rider truck alone to Oklahoma City. Uh, McVeigh, or that is, uh, Nichols stayed back in Kansas. And then so McVeigh goes to Oklahoma City. He delivers the truck bomb. And then he flees uh, where he is pulled over on the freeway about an hour and a half after the bombing uh, for minor traffic violation. Um, McVeigh has on him a concealed weapon at the time he was pulled over. So he actually was arrested on a gun charge for having this concealed weapon. So he is in jail, essentially, within an hour and a half of the bombing. Meanwhile, the investigation is underway and the uh, FBI tracks the axle from the rider truck back to a rental shop in Kansas called Elliott's Body Shop. They show up at Elliott's Body Shop and interview there the people who work there. Now, this is a small rental office located in Junction City, Kansas. They do not have a lot of rentals, maybe a several a day at most. And uh, this, uh, they were interviewed within days of the truck rental, which occurred on April 17th. So these witnesses were interviewed about who came in to pick up this rider truck. And those witnesses were Eldon Elliott, the owner, uh, the receptionist Vicki Beamer, and Tom Kessinger. And these three people all were in agreement that the rider truck was picked up by two people on April 17th. They provided descriptions of those two people, which is what led to the FBI sketches of John Doe 1 and John Doe 2. And then while uh, FBI agents are interviewing them, you also have agents, of course, in Oklahoma City who are interviewing various witnesses at the scene. And all of the witnesses who are interviewed in Oklahoma City, virtually, say, 99.9% of them all saw this rider truck with two people in it. 
And so they are describing very much the same thing. And you look at these 302 reports, uh, varying levels of detail, of course, but they all are describing essentially the same thing. Now, one thing to note as well, as I cover this in one of my, my uh, essays, is there is surveillance footage of the bombing. And in October of 1995, the Associated Press ran a story. It was October 28th, 1995, a uh, story that had, was headlined, um, Surveillance Tape uh, Shows Passenger in Rider Truck. And in that article, they have a law enforcement source who says that there is they have surveillance footage of the bombing and that it shows there are two people in the rider truck, including, you know, a passenger as well as the driver. So the, the surveillance tape shows pretty much the same thing all the witnesses said they saw, which was two people in that truck, both at the scene of the crime and when the bomb truck was picked up. Right. So there, there people are seeing all of these two people, but there seems to be hesitancy in this huge uh investigation right i mean the okay bomb investigation was massive but nobody seemed they didn't the fbi didn't seem to want to bring them to court none of those witnesses were brought to court right that's correct well there were a couple who were called at the nichols trial but for the most part none of those witnesses were called at the mcveigh federal trial when they could have been called and they could have pointed directly at mcveigh in the courtroom and said it was him i saw him getting out of the truck Right. So they could have done it. And that's really kind of just one of the, the beginnings of how strange this whole investigation in case uh, commenced. Right. Because you not only did they avoid going into certain inquiries, they fabricated and destroyed evidence. Can you talk about that? Yes. So in investigating this case, I did find out that um, not, you're correct, that not only did, were there certain areas the FBI didn't want to go into, but I was shocked to discover that they were actually fabricating evidence, in some cases destroying evidence. Uh, you had a whistleblower uh, who, who came forward uh, named Frederick Whitehurst, and he worked at the FBI laboratory. And he basically said that there were unscientific, unsound practices at the FBI crime lab. Uh, for having done that, he was fired by the FBI. And so he sued, you know, for unlawful termination. And he actually, there was a settlement. And there also was an investigation where the Department of Justice published a um, Office of uh, Inspector General report on the FBI crime lab. One of the things that report went into was the OK bomb investigation. And what that report found is that essentially everyone in that crime lab um, who worked on the OK bomb case, uh, uh, chiefly uh, an examiner named David Williams uh, and his supervisor, um, both were guilty of altering reports of uh, fabricating evidence. It, it, specifically, the words used were unscientific practices. They were uh, they were referred to. Um, well, they were said to be. Um, well, I guess the way I should say it is that the report recommended that they be transferred out of the crime lab because of the work they were doing was simply unacceptable. And an example of that is Dave Williams wrote in a report uh, that the presence of PETN, any type of explosives, uh, was not found on uh, McVeigh's pocket knife, or it was inconclusive. And his supervisor had him alter that report to instead say, that the presence of PETN was confirmed. And so what they're doing here essentially is fabricating evidence for use at trial so that the prosecution can go into trial 
with evidence. Um, and, you know, it's not scientific. It's not sound. It was just they were just making things up in some cases. For example, David Williams initially speculated, oh, uh, this bomb was 4,800 pounds, you know, and where does he get that? Well, that's because the FBI found receipts in Terry Nichols' home showing a purchase of about 4,800 pounds of info. Rather than actually looking at the bomb and doing a scientific analysis, he just, you know, extrapolates that out based upon something that was found. And that is just one example of how they fabricated evidence. They also destroyed evidence such as FBI had uh, transcripts of phone calls that were made to the fire department in Oklahoma City. And there was evidently a phone call that the fire department received the week before the bombing, um, basically telling them that there was going to be some type of terror attack upcoming. And when the defense requested transcripts of uh, those dispatch tapes, the FBI responded that, oh, those have been destroyed. And that's just one example. There are several examples like that. Right. And there's another one like that you mentioned, I'm thinking one of your articles that the ATF, like the Murrah Federal Building was full of federal agencies. So different agencies. There was evidence people had heard that the ATF agents had gotten a text saying, don't come to work that morning, right? Absolutely. This caused a, a great deal of concern among the victims uh, because one of these victims, I guess you, you could say his name is Bruce Shaw and his wife worked in the credit union in the Murrah Federal Building. As soon as the bombing happened, Bruce Shaw and his supervisor, Tony Brazier, went to the bomb site and Bruce Shaw knew the local ATF agents. They were he, he and his wife were friendly with them. And so he flagged down one of these unfamiliar guys in an ATF jacket. Um, he, he didn't know the guy, but he flagged him down. And, and he basically is telling him, we need to, I need to get in touch with some of the local agents. They know me. And, you know, he's thinking they're going to help me find my wife. And so this ATF guy gets on his two-way radio, tries to reach somebody he's not able to. And he goes back and he, he tells Bruce Shaw that uh, he, he's not able to reach anyone at the moment, but it's unlikely that he's going to because most of the agents were not there that day because they received a page that morning informing them not to come into work. And his supervisor, Tony Brazier, was standing right there when that discussion happened. And he, he said on camera to KFOR Channel 4 News that those are the words that came out of his mouth. He said that they received a page not to come into work. I believe, my speculative, but I believe there was some sort of sting operation uh, the previous evening and that most of the local ATF agents were attached to that all-night surveillance operation. And that's why they were not there at work that day. Interesting. And then there was also um, there was also another kind of uh, there were four. They, this is another example of the government narrowing the suspects down. But wasn't there four four sets of fingerprints found when Nichols uh, was arrested? Didn't they find four sets of fingerprints and they ignored Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. So what happened there is that uh, Nichols had buried some evidence under his former Harrington, Kansas home. And so there was a cache of bomb material under that home, including uh, explosives, explosive components, detonators, that sort of thing. And while he was in prison around 2005, he starts working with the FBI. And, and it's kind of a long story, but through a, a third party there in the prison, it's revealed to investigators that there's this cache under a Nichols' former home. Um, eventually, the FBI is uh, they kind of had their arm twisted to do it. It took a two congressmen's offices reaching out to them to eventually get them to take action. But they did. They raided the home. They recovered 
the cache there and exactly what Nichols said would be there was there, This is these explosive components. And one of the things Nichols said is that within that cache of explosives, the FBI would find the fingerprints of a co-conspirator in the bombing. According to Nichols, that co-conspirator was gun dealer Roger Moore, who provided McVeigh with binary explosives that were used in the bomb. And so they find this material. They um, About more than a year later, the FBI lab produces a report on that raid where they failed to disclose anything of value. Uh, they don't disclose anything about uh, identifying those fingerprints. However, a source uh, at the FBI uh, for John, a reporter named John Solomon, uh, he had a source at the FBI back in the mid-2000s who was telling him about this subject, and he wrote some stories on it. And that source told him that among that cache of explosives, the fingerprints uh, found there, in addition to McVeigh and Nichols, were fingerprints for Roger Moore and both a fingerprint and a hair sample from an individual named Richard Lee Guthrie, who was a, a white supremacist terrorist who actually, he died, he supposedly hung himself in prison in, um, in the late 90s. But uh, according to his source, that's what was located in that cache. Wow. So that's kind of like other, brings in this kind of larger, kind of neo white supremacy underground. And that, uh, there was during the, before this bombing that happened April 1995, 1995, there was something called PATCON. Can you explain what PATCON was and who was involved with that? Yeah, so PATCON is FBI shorthand for Patriot Conspiracy, and this was an investigation started in the early 1990s by the FBI, uh, I think as a result of the 1988 sedition trial, where they failed to convict a whole, about a dozen white supremacist terrorists, and through their FBI's experience with a group called The Order in the early 1980s, they were fully aware that another group was eventually going to appear that had the same ideology as The Order, and would carry out the exact same types of attacks, the kind of things you see in the, that book, The Turner Diaries, you know, bombing of buildings, that sort of thing. So they create this, this PATCON program to supposedly infiltrate and get inroads among the white separatist communities so that they could, you know, know about any sort of attacks that might happen. And ultimately, what we find out through one of the uh, PATCON assets, there's a gentleman named John Matthews, who was an undercover guy for the FBI. He worked on PATCON, and he said that his role was actually to infiltrate and incite to violence the people in these groups. And so what we find is, is at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing, the FBI is carrying out this major case undercover operation called PATCON, which is investigating the very groups that Tim McVeigh was affiliated with. And many have speculated that perhaps the bombing was in some way related to PATCON and subsequent undercover operations designed to incite these types of groups. Right. And <clears throat> McVeigh himself has a very colorful background. He was in the Iraq war, but he, Dan Plemont notes that he visited William Cooper, who was kind of like the pre-Alex Jones. I think Cooper talks about him and, uh, he also was involved possibly with bank robberies. And, and it also was curious that the, the bomb was, do you think the bomb was very sophisticated? Because it seems like you would need to be uh, pretty competent to put together what, what that bomb was, right? Can, can you talk about McVeigh and what your opinion of him is? 
Sure, sure. So in terms of the bomb, um, I believe it was rather sophisticated. I mean, you're talking about an ammonium nitrate fertilizer fuel oil bomb, which is kind of unsophisticated by nature. But one of the things about this bomb that was a little different is that he incorporated into it nitromethane, and he was also seeking to acquire something called anhydrous hydrazine, which is essentially rocket fuel. Not very easy for most people to get their hands on that. Uh, but he supposedly heard uh, from a, uh, an Arizona white supremacist figure named Jack Oliphant um, about using anhydrous hydrazine to boost a bomb. And so he ver McVeigh very much did build a somewhat sophisticated uh, bomb for uh, the types of components that he had access to, more so than most ANFO bombs. Um, I personally believe that what he built at Geary Lake on the 18th was sloppy and probably not very well designed. And myself and other researchers actually believe that uh, he took that rider truck to a warehouse in downtown Oklahoma City called Emrick Storage. And that in that warehouse, the bomb was likely redesigned in the late uh, hours of April 18th, early morning hours of April 19th by a bomb expert and that it was not McVeigh who did that. Um, that That's speculative, but, you know, McVeigh did have the address for Emmerich storage in his pocket when he was pulled over. And there's a whole backstory to that, but that's ultimately what wow. we think. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And then wasn't there something there? I mean, there's so many weird things around deaths. We can talk about Terrence Yeeke, but wasn't there a picture of the rider truck that was taken by like an ultralight flyer and that guy ended up dead? Do you know that story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This really kind of worked its way into Oklahoma City bombing mythology and lore because uh, what happened here is in the late 1990s, a few photos were pu uh, published online, which showed what appeared to be a military base with a rider truck in it. And this was in the fall of, uh, it was taken in the fall of 1994. And um, as it turns out, the photos were genuine. A Washington Post story confirmed, a 1997 Washington Post story confirmed that these were photos taken over Camp Gruber in Braggs, Oklahoma. And uncharacteristically, this Washington Post report also uh, quoted the National Guard as not only confirming the photos were real, but stating that the rider truck was connected to a DARPA, a Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency project relating to weapon sensors. Um, the man who took those photos, you're correct, was flying an ultralight when he took them, and he actually died in a, an, when his ultralight uh, crashed in May of 1995. And this is before his photos were ever even released online. He, you know, wow. he dies in this wow. plane crash. Yeah. Well, super suspicious. And then Terrence Yeeke, like the, if you look at his story, he supposedly ran out into the woods and committed suicide. But he seemed to have he was there on site and supposedly saved other people. He's an African-American police officer. Can you talk about his story, too? Because yeah, that just happened. Yeah, so Terry Yeeke was one of the, he was actually the first person in, from law enforcement to arrive at the scene in Oklahoma City. Um, he was a police officer in the Oklahoma City Police Department. Uh, he arrived on the scene, uh, first person, and immediately started rendering assistance. He personally uh, helped uh, several victims out of the wreckage and participated in rescue operations that day. And evidently what happened is that he was very conflicted uh, about the Oklahoma City bombing. According to his ex-wife, Tanya Yeeke, 
he was very upset about something relating to the bombing. And he was saying to her um, something along the lines of it's not what they say it is and, and very suspicious. He's upset about something and what it is, we don't know. Now, Yake, supposedly was gathering evidence relating to an investigation he was doing himself. He's carrying out some kind of investigation. And uh, what researchers believe is we believe he might have had a copy of a the surveillance video of the bombing. So he, he's doing this investigation and he is actually then found dead in a field. And Yiki had both of his, both of his wrists were slit, his neck was cut uh, he had a gunshot wound to the head, um, something from it was a crime scene that obviously depicts murder. And that was ruled a suicide, uh, which is just completely improbable when you look at the crime scene. So I believe he was murdered and I believe it had to do with something that he had discovered that was um, a problem, a uh, problem for somebody. And he ultimately right. paid for that with his life. And and those and you wrote that article. The surveillance videos were all swept up like by the FBI, just like a nine eleven, and kept from public view, right? Absolutely, yeah. I wrote an article that people interested can find that in Garrison Magazine, and uh, the FBI did. Uh, they did sweep the area. They did obtain surveillance video, and it was re reported on CNN. I've got clips on my YouTube channel of the you know reporters saying the FBI has said that it, it now has surveillance footage which may show the bombing, and multiple clips of that. As I mentioned earlier, the October 28, 1995 Associated Press article states that they have surveillance footage and that it shows two people in the truck. And so I am just shocked that this footage is not leaked, uh, given how many people have supposedly seen it and have been quoted talking about it in the newspaper yeah it's fascinating and another death was uh wasn't it jesse trentadue's brother died in jail and he they thought maybe he had information i wasn't he tied into the, the okc bombing case i don't, I don't recall yeah yeah so jesse trentadue's brother kenneth trentadue he uh was crossing the border from Mexico into the United States. And this was during the John Doe number two manhunt when he was, you know, the, the most sought after figure in the country. And uh, Trinity's brother in some ways matched the physical description for John Doe too. He had a very powerful upper body, uh, five foot eight to five foot 10, um, just similar in nature. And in addition to that though, he had, he did have a criminal record, right? He had robbed, uh, some banks in the early 1980s, and he served time for that. And he actually got out of prison and was getting his life back together. But the fact that he matches this description, he is driving a pickup truck at the border, he has a, a criminal record, he is then basically taken into custody, and he is transferred to the uh, Federal Correctional Facility in Oklahoma City. And he died there in uh, federal custody in Oklahoma City. And the crime scene there, much like with Yiki, indicates that uh, Trinidu was tortured and he was beaten to death. There were uh, bruises all over his body. Um, the family uh, found found that his body was just covered in, in bruises indicating uh, some sort of interrogation. And through Jesse, uh, his brother, investigating this, and he's a lawyer and has carried on a multi-year multi investigation into this, he found that 
Uh, he believes his brother was tied into the Oklahoma City bombing investigation, was mistaken for a suspect, was subject to uh, enhanced interrogation, and died during that enhanced interrogation. Right. So everybody is super intense. I mean, the, the bombing itself, well, at least 168 dead, 700 injured, cost half a billion dollars in damage. So that bomb was very sophisticated. Did you buy the story that it, it seems very odd because it did so an ANFO bomb did so much damage to that building. Like it blew a third of it away. It's just there's something about it that's unsettling. Did you ever buy the story that there were actual bombs inside the Murrah building? You know, I've certainly not. Yeah, I've not dismissed that entirely. Not at all, especially when uh, I, I obtained a surveillance or not a surveillance, but a recording, a VHS recording uh, by Sergeant Melvin Sumter, a, a police officer, or sheriff's office person. He was there at the scene and he recorded uh, on VHS the scene. And when I reviewed that tape, I was just blown away by the massive scale of the damage. And you're talking three quarters of this federal building is it practically only a quarter of its left standing. And uh, you're talking about uh, concrete columns, completely pulverized dust. And one of the things that drew my attention that caused me to be skeptical is that you did not see a, um, there was not a, an even uh, damage pattern. You, you would expect, for example, a, an info bomb goes off and you're going to have a damage pattern that goes out in a circle that is, you know, uh, easy, easy to predict. And instead you're seeing a, like an unusual damage pattern on the building where you have columns that are further away from the truck that are completely vaporized or gone and then columns that are closer that are still left standing now, me not being an expert on explosives and that sort of thing i can't render a good judgment on it but i'm certainly open to that uh, based upon uh, experts who have looked at it and who have said that there's something wrong right it's just something that doesn't really make sense an info bomb is it's i don't think it has that blasting capacity it blasts a lot but you, I think that even in your article, you talk about the dispersion rate, but it doesn't have like, you'd have to add something to make those that all of that right. concrete disappear. So it's something very suspicious. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you're not going to see uh, um, from an info blast pressure wave something that turns uh, reinforced concrete just into powder. And my suspicion is that perhaps the surveillance video might show both a truck exploding and the building imploding. Oh, and just yeah. if you were to see that, you would know immediately, whoa, something isn't right here. And I mean, there's just so many characters. We've talked in the pre-show about uh, Colson, Danny Colson, who's talking publicly now. But also Merrick Garland was, I think, prosecuted one of these guys who's now our attorney general, right? Absolutely. He was connected to this case. In fact, he, he himself... Uh, did the arguments in court for the April 27th preliminary hearing. This is a hearing that the government held to show that it has a reasonable basis for prosecuting McVeigh. And so they have this hearing where Merrick Garland chairs, chairs that and he does the legal arguments. And in that uh, hearing, Garland's primary witness is FBI agent John Hursley. And I do encourage people to go read the transcript of this hearing. It's very interesting. 
he has uh, witnesses, uh, or his, that is his witness, uh, Hersley, is touting the various witnesses saying, you know, this guy saw this, um, you know, this guy saw him fleeing in the Mercury Marquis, and he had someone in the vehicle with him. Uh, this other guy saw him in the rider truck with another person. So all these people that John Hersley's touting in the preliminary hearing, you fully expect would have appeared later in the federal trial. Uh, but, you know, they did not because then by that time, the FBI's official story had changed and they no longer could account for this other suspect. Right. And I have seen that other uh, I was looking through some research and some people have said there was like five to ten people involved in this, you know, speculated there's five to ten people. So it's not just a John Doe number two. Like there's a much larger group and only two people got prosecuted. So it's very curious. Did you ever come across anything that would indicate it would be a larger group of people? Absolutely. I believe there were at least four people involved along with McVeigh. And this does come from several witness sightings. Uh, when you look at them and put them in chronological order, they're very much congruent. It, you know, one thing with witnesses, you could say, you know, it's not reliable. Eyewitnesses are not reliable, that kind of thing. But um, I could understand that if they were all seeing different things. But the fact is that they're all seeing essentially the same thing. And I do think that paints a broad picture. One example of that is in the early morning hours of April 19th, um, a rider truck pulls into an easy mark. I'm talking around maybe 1 or 2 a.m. and uh, pulls in there to, to get gas. And two occupants come into the easy mark. One of them is McVeigh to use the restroom. The other one is John Doe, too. Uh, he picks out a deli sandwich there. Uh, McVeigh comes out of the restroom. He pays for the sandwich and the gas. They both go out of the Easy Mart, and the person working there, Richard Sinnott, observes them get into kind of an argument right outside the Easy Mart where McVeigh's kind of getting in this guy's face. They're arguing. They go back to the truck, and they, they pull in, or they get in to leave. As they're uh, pulling out to leave, a uh, pickup truck pulls, in, pulls up right up next to the rider truck, and a sedan pulls up, and they are in a convoy. And they leave together. And so right there, you have at least, in addition to McVeigh, you've got John Doe 2 is with them. And then you have the other two people driving the other two vehicles. Who knows how many people might be in those vehicles. But right there, you've got at least three people other than McVeigh. Then along with that, you have a witness in downtown Oklahoma City. It's about 8.30 a.m. And Kyle Hunt, a banker, is heading towards the Bank of Oklahoma for a meeting that he has. As he's pulling up to a stoplight, he sees there is a Mercury marquee and in front of it, a rider truck. And he notices just the shabby appearance of this marquee. And the reason he remembers this so well is he made eye contact with the driver of that vehicle. And he said this guy gave him an icy cold go to hell look and that he identified that driver as McVeigh. Now, in that marquee with McVeigh were two other people. You've got someone sitting in the passenger seat with him in the front, and you have someone else in the back seat with long hair. So right there, you've got, again, two other individuals in the marquee and whomever is driving the rider truck. And so you have at least three people, and I think it, it is reasonable to say, based on the evidence, that there probably were four or five people involved. And when you include these others, like Roger Moore, who was absolutely an accomplice, you include the other suspects, and, uh, you know, the FBI thought the same thing. In early April 1995 in the LA Times, they published a story, and it said they believe the bombing is the work of four or five people, and uh, they absolutely, I think, were right about that. The other person who I was referencing, but who had this information was you. I actually was looking at your Twitter. You've been very active on Twitter posting this information. So that was actually your research. So you have 
you can go to uh, uh, Richard Booth's Twitter and look through all the other stuff he's posting. Some of the information is that he posts on Twitter is not on in his Garrison Journal articles. And you also mentioned this guy Colson, who was who was monitoring this, but he's inter- interestingly he's been on. Um, other programs talking about the OKC bombing, and he was very important person overseeing a lot of these uh, radical wh- white supremacist organizations back then, right? Absolutely. I believe Danny Colson knows a lot about this that he has not yet divulged. And, and just to give you an example, this guy is a former deputy assistant director. He's the founder of the FBI's hostage rescue team. He was directly involved with the apprehension of or the well, shootout with uh, um Robert J. Matthews of the Order and other groups like that. So he very much knows about these groups and was involved on the undercover review committee at the FBI. So he certainly would be familiar with various undercover operations they were running. Now, Colson went on the BBC in 2007, and he did say on that broadcast, there are 20, something like 24 witnesses who saw McVeigh and that they all saw him with another person. And he emphasized that. He also emphasized the fact that a gentleman by the name of Andy Strassmeyer should have been interviewed relating to the Oklahoma City bombing. And so, and he's talked a lot about uh, that on various programs. Most recently, even a year ago, he was on a podcast on YouTube and he's on there and he says to the, the two podcast hosts, you know, uh, McVeigh visited Elohim City before he blew up the Murrah building. And that's the location where this Andy Strassmeyer fellow was uh, was living at the time. And so Colson, I think, knows a lot about this case. There's more that he has not said, and he is a person that um, I believe would be uh, definitely worth talking to. Hopefully, you know, you hope that he would be honest and forthcoming, um, but it's hard to know in cases like that. And can you elaborate or expand on Andreas Strassmeyer? Because that's somebody very curious, too, because he's known to be seen in Elohim City and then this bombing happens and he disappears back to Germany and he never gets arrested or I don't yeah, even he flees. Think he does, yeah. Can you talk right. about it? Him? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, you're right. He fled the country right after the bombing, you know, got out of here pretty quick. And this guy, Andy Strassmeyer, what you essentially have here is a gentleman who was in the German army and in the German army, he had intelligence training uh, to feed disinformation to Warsaw Pact agents and that sort of thing. And so he comes over to the United States in 1988, immediately after the Department of Justice fails their sedition trial. They have this trial in 88 where they have 12 white supremacists that they're wanting to convict of uh, sedition, seditious conspiracy, and they, they were all acquitted. Well, as soon as that happens, Andy Strassmeyer is coming over to the United States. He's coming here on a visa that is very unusual. On his visa, uh, it has designated the letters A and O. And we looked into that, or researchers looked into that to find out what these special designations are. And what it turned out to, to be, which, and this can be looked up on like State Department website and so forth, but essentially one of the indicators meant diplomatic visa, and the other indicator, I believe the O, uh, meant that he was a foreign national with extreme uh, capabilities. And usually for, as an example, what you would see there is like, say someone was from a foreign country and they're working on something like the Manhattan Project, or they're here working on, you know, a classified project, they would be designated as a person with unusual or um, outstanding abilities. So Strasmere's got this visa that makes it look a lot like he's some type of foreign asset. And he's over here. And what is he doing? 
he is appearing at white supremacist locations. He is at the Texas Light Infantry in Texas. Uh, immediately after that, he goes to Elohim City in Oklahoma, where he's pretending to be a neo-Nazi. And uh, this is a guy who uh, he speaks German, he speaks Hebrew, he had an Israeli girlfriend, he'd been to Israel many times. He's absolutely not you know, an anti-Semite or a racist of any kind, but here he's he's pretending to be a neo-Nazi in the United States. And bottom line is I believe that he was an intelligence asset at Elohim City and serving there as their chief of security, he was in a perfect position to essentially agitate and provoke the folks there to violence. And I believe that is what he did and that he was involved in the planning of the Oklahoma City bombing. Wow. And have you ever heard the allegations of Cody Snodgrass who said that? I have. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's complete, complete bullshit. That This is okay. a guy. He's just completely full of it, making up stories. Um, I urge anybody, if they wanted to look into that, to, to go and read his book and you'll see uh, how full of it he is. He's just a, a grifter. Gotcha. So, yeah, it wouldn't be the first one. Um we're at about 40 minutes. Is there anything? You, I mean, we talked in the pre-show, like another person who shows up. There's just high strangeness around this whole case. Another person who shows up is Jolly West, right? Louis Jolly West, the kind of MK CIA doctor. He shows up. He was he has for people who don't know West for a time was at I think the University of Oklahoma as a psychologist. So he had a kind of provenance there in Oklahoma and you said he showed up to kind of be a kind of a trauma specialist for everybody there right that was the ostensible purpose purpose of his visit right right the the purpose was essentially as kind of an expert on trauma and what we can say is that Jolly West was there at the same time McVeigh was when McVeigh was first taken into custody and he's taken from Perry the jail there to Tinker Air Force Base it's understood that Jolly West was there at the same time. Now, it's important to to uh, understand that there is no evidence that we're aware of that Jolly West ever met with McVeigh, and there are people who like to claim that uh, as a fact when we actually do not know that to be a fact. However, it is very interesting, and I believe it's something that should be pursued, and it should also be noted, though, that McVeigh did have a psychiatrist who was Jolly West's protege, a gentleman named uh, Dr. I believe John Smith, and he was the psychiatrist. They saw a couple, but this is the one that he saw the most. And wow. this is a guy who worked under West on very much the same types of techniques when you're talking about things like behavior modification, hypnosis, drugs, things like that. So it is very unusual that McVeigh is even meeting with that person. Right. So it's just, that's what I'm going to retitle this talk, the high strangeness around, you know, Timothy McVeigh and the OKC bombing. It's just, it's not clean cut. It's very murky waters. I mean, you know, I don't know. I think there's a lot more to research. What, and there's been other independent researchers. Wasn't there the key investigation, if I remember correctly? And there's another guy. There's been some documentaries too, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's there's not a, a great deal of information right now in terms of books and documentaries, but there are a few that are very good. I recommend people read Wendy Painting's book, Aberration in the Heartland of the Real. Recommend they read uh, Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed by Roger Charles and Andrew Gumbel. Those are probably the two best books on the case. A couple documentaries. Uh, uh, there's one called Terror from Within, which is pretty good. There's a BBC 2007 special 
uh, called The Conspiracy Files, which has Danny Colson on it. Some of the stuff we talked about appears on that mm -hmm. documentary. I recommend people check those out, too. Right. And one more question from Bonnie Bell. What do you think the motivation of the bombing was from outside sources such as German intelligence? What do you think the motivation was? God, that's such a very good question because, you know, I really don't know the answer to that just yet. I, what I can say is that there's been some speculation that it was some sort of, if you ever heard of the program uh, called Gladio, the strategy of tension, uh, which occurred in, in Europe after World War II, where essentially false flag terror attacks were carried out to terrorize the population, essentially, and to allow a far right uh, regimes to gain more power and the security state to gain more power. Some have speculated that the Oklahoma City bombing was some sort of domestic gladio type event. Um, I couldn't say that with 100% certainty, and I'm still actively trying to determine exactly what happened here. Is you're you're correct. There is a very murky case. There are many thousands of different angles, and you could talk about it for hours. As there are so many different bits of information. But it's still important. They are actually mentioning that what happened in Buffalo is like what happened in OKC. I'm seeing that in the news. They're saying it's domestic white supremacy terrorists. So they're going to, there could be policy changes be just because of this and referencing this, what happened in 1995. So really great talk and you're very informative. So I really appreciate you coming on and spending your time. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up the discussion? Well, I you know, just would recommend folks, if they're interested in this case, they can find many, many documents on it, including about 1,400 news reports that are in chronological order from the day of the bombing to the present at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And I just encourage people to go there and dig in, read the material, and you can find my writing in Garrison as well as uh, on, I'm on Twitter. Um, my hat, my handle is booth underscore OKC. And like you said, I do post threads about Oklahoma city from uh, time to time. And you can go back and look at that. And again, the guest is Richard booth. And we talked about all the high strangeness, high strangeness around the Oklahoma city bombing in 1995. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. William. Have a good day. Right, take care. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there.